So uh, now that we got that infrastructure bill voted on, uh, I hear Joe Manchin's just eager and ready to vote on that $2 trillion uh, Build Back Better spending bill because, you know, we scratched his back. Now he's going to scratch ours. It's all going to work out great. So explain to me what the <clears throat> what this is. The infrastructure bill was 3.7, right? Yeah, I think it actually trimmed down to like one something, but yeah. But it it started out that was the 3.7 one. Yeah, the BIF. And the BIF they talked down the, amongst themselves <laughs> and then took it uh to a vote. Right. Um which they do. And then the build back better is the climate one. I thought climate stuff was included in the There's some climate stuff in the infrastructure bill, but it's doesn't really matter because the vast majority of the infrastructure bill is going towards building more highways and widening more highway infrastructure in all the states in America, which, which is just going to make more cars get on the road. And yeah. like we talked about in the decarbonization episode, we're so far away from actually being able to electrify all vehicles that that we're actually going to increase the emissions by building more roads before we can just fill all those roads with only electric cars. So why are you young people not voting? <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, the, all the climate stuff was, is kind of pointless. Like they say that they put a little bit of money towards like climate infrastructure, like solar and things. And then they put a little bit of money towards like more robust mass transit that states and cities can, dip into in order to improve their systems but it's negligible in comparison to the road infrastructure for cars which is why when they were in uh in scotland this last week all they were talking about was man we got to get so many electric cars let's talk about electric cars you guys want to talk about electric cars oh my god what about electric cars they're gonna save the day right guys cars how about some more cars you guys got any more ideas about how we can make cars save the day it's, it's just terrible. Just when we all know that the answer is like density, reducing cars, reducing emissions from vehicles, adding more public transit, uh, making those systems more robust so people don't feel the need to have a car. Not only that, then you don't have to have all the land requirements for parking that are just emissions guzzling, you know places that you just park a car and you pay thousands and thousands of dollars per year per vehicle and that land is barren because it's just a bunch of stacked concrete generating heat there's no you know green space nothing it's the the whole thing is flawed it's just it's really frustrating and and then you have all the people that are like hey but at least we did something right and you're like i kind of wish we did nothing because this something is is just perpetuating the bad policies and bad decision making that we've been doing for the last 35 years yeah it's the road stuff is pretty disheartening um but i i even tweeted out my head exploded when the person she's from the empire files which is now on means tv but i'm not sure what it was on before that but she ask them about the Pentagon, which is a larger polluter than 140 nations combined. This is Abby Phillip, the reporter? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And 
uh, as uh, Nancy Pelosi had walked away from her mic, probably cussing under her ancient breath, uh, <laughs> whoever that guy was that was sitting there, he's like, well, I would like to just point out from every defense administrator I've spoken to, they have assured me that climate change is a defense matter. And it, yeah, it's just like because because, you know, when uh, when all these uh, coastal regions are inundated with water and you have mass migrations of human beings, we're going to need a robust defense system to, you know, take out those people and, and prevent them from like trying to migrate to America's dry lands. <laughs> it's, it's such an insane statement because like just immediately you're like where are you getting this information from the people who are benefiting from you giving them money yeah constantly at an increased rate um yeah it's a it was a day that i imagine um no i won't say that uh there's there's just no reason for it to be framed as a defense issue because they're also saying like well you know, the, having the military, having the army means that we're going to be able to deploy them to, you know, rescue all these flooded places. And it's like, why don't we only have a National Guard, like <laughs> a lot of countries, um, a defense force, perhaps, and you can, yeah, I guess deploy them, but you you didn't do that for a global pandemic. So I'm not really counting on you showing up at every single coastal location to lay sandbags. Because then, then little island nations like Japan will amass their entire population to do a land invasion of, of America, starting with California, and they'll just storm the beaches of California because all we've got is like a, a Coast Guard or a National Guard. Like, what are those guys going to do to stop this invading army that's just going to take, take out the entire landmass by coming all the way across the ocean? It's it's a big fear. Isn't everything drones anyways? <laughs> like, you know, even going back to World War II, you know, Pearl Harbor happens. There's an entire battle in the Pacific. Cool. We have a whole war about it. and But they were like very limited, not great attempts by Japan to in, do anything to the United States mainland. Like there were ideas they were going to like send some balloons over through the high atmosphere. And so when they got over, they eventually floated due to the weather patterns over the top of America. Then they would uh, either release gases or be able to drop bombs. But of course, that's not that's just total indiscriminate. Like they could have just landed in, you know, giant parts of the Nevada desert like there's no targeting and just the idea of like some sort of red dawn type of thing happening where we're going to get a bunch of paratroopers that are, and they're going to be enough of them that they could like actually take over the entire land mass of North America and we're going to be subjugated to some other country's rule it's I get I get that there's fear, that there's latent fear, especially from like Nazi Germany just running over Poland and running over France. But that's not the situation on the ground here. And it never really has been. And yet that's what we always act like it is. It's 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 kind of frustrating. And of course, we're talking about this on Veterans Day. So appreciate your service. Thank you, veterans. <laughs> You are not speaking for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> What's never ending 
is a josh i a I, josh pre- I, I, I appreciate all the all the poor souls that were drafted and couldn't get out of it i have sympathy for you at most <laughs> uh yeah it's a contentious thing to say i suppose um many people won't say it but i'll be that guy yeah 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 uh so all uh, you know, more more support for all the people who resisted uh, being signing up and volunteering to fight in imperialist conflicts. But I understand you know, when you're 18 years old, your uh, your understanding of the world and necessarily your your patriotic idealism, especially as a young man, where you need to like feel like you got to prove yourself to the world, and you also feel invincible. I get how that you know, definitely weighs into those decisions. And that's really why all the branches of the military target that specific demographic. (laughs) Because if they were targeting like 29 year olds or 35 year olds, like they would get nobody to sign up for the fucking military. So there, there is, I, I, it's hard for me to necessarily just say, oh my God, you're, you made all the wrong decisions when you're 18 because most of us made all the wrong decisions when we were 18. Yeah, yeah, it's it's certainly difficult to criticize from that angle, especially because of how the military is just predatory in nature. But it's, you know, at 18, I didn't want to be in the military at all. Uh, we had a recruiter come to our cafeteria. And at that time, you know, I was wanting to become a doctor. So they were asking everybody what they wanted to do. And they latched on to all the kids. They were like, I don't know. Um, they asked me and I was like, oh, I want to be a doctor. And they're like, oh, good luck with that. And (laughs) never spoke to me again. (laughs) Nerd. We don't want Uh, you fucking nerds. (laughs) Much like cops, you know, if you have uh, too much ambition, they don't want you. Um, even at the age of 18, but you know, when I was younger, my dad was in the Marines. So I thought, oh yeah, I want to be, uh, in the Marine Corps, not the army. (laughs) Can, could you imagine? Or the Navy? Oh yeah. Um, but it's it's one of those things that it's also like you're raised in that way, I feel. Mm-hmm. Like it, you're either um, a target because your family has been, I guess, agnostic towards the military or you're pro-military as a family. Um, so I certainly understand how people get tricked into it um, or think that they're solving any sort of crisis but all it takes is sitting down and thinking okay uh, what is the benefit of any of this conflict which they don't want you to do like no no it's all more about out for that it's more about glory and honor and individualistic achievements and which right. is why like the medals are a big deal and 
you know, rank and all of that is all very important because those personal achievements are lauded as like these individual moments that you've become better than other another person. Um, and the the there's this overwhelming cultural sense too that even like pervades into our generation as millennials and the and the next generation, even though we're so far away removed from you know, World War Two, but the glorification or and the reverence that is paid towards that experience of the American GI that mm-hmm. went through World War Two, whether it was in the Pacific or it was in the European theater, and how that is like even through like modern movies where they try to show like the PTSD and the actual trauma and the actual like gruesome nature of the way that the war was, there is still this uh, appeal, I think, especially to young men that is, man, you are missing the glory. You're missing the, your honor moment. You can have this type of the things that you're seeing that that is these bonds that are generated between these men's on the battlefield there's only one place to get that and if you have and so when you see it like constantly flushed in your face and then it's treated always as this very honorable thing um the reinforcement is always there to make you want to have that experience rather than be like actually you know, shudder towards that experience or think that that experience is not an ideal experience for a human being in a civilized society. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that, that's the experience that they sell, but the actual experience is where, where are any of these wars being fought uh, and you're going and killing poor brown people around the world. Right, So right. There's, there's nothing honorable about that. Um, and, you know, what is... I, I don't know, maybe... Hey, I'm different, you know, but I think somebody uh, telling me to do something and not question them is not an honorable thing. <laughs> right, right, right. We we we've talked about uh, how the the number one thing of all free minded thought is based around doubt. So if the whole the whole system is designed to eliminate all doubt from any individual's thought process, then it's not very it's not a free thinking system. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I heard I heard enough growing up about how how great it was that at a you know as my dad, who is an officer, is teaching these uh, infantry soldiers how to shoot their grenade launchers. Um, a deer runs out into the field, and they all try and blow up the deer. <laughs> so, uh, and they all miss too, which is great. Um, they didn't even get close. So. <laughs> With the grenade launchers. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the beauty of it, is it's a bunch of people that, um, you know, believe that they're just this ancient class of warrior that uh, can't aim a shotgun correctly. Uh, but there was also the, he loved to do his, uh, his, his chant of when they were training against riots and they would pretend that the protesters, they were shooting shotgun shells at knee level. We're all anti-nuclear <laughs> protesters. Um, so it's <laughs> yeah, I guess that would have been like the thing. Uh, the 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 late seventies, early eighties, big mm-hmm. uh, 
all all the uh, late stage hippies were chaining themselves to nuclear power plants and nuclear missile silos to try to de denuclear the world. Yeah, so it's you know, um, <laughs> you you can choose your side, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um. But anyway, the. Our main focus for today of what we actually did all the research on. <laughs> uh, that was not research. That was just, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, th- th- those experience. were just off, off the cuff, off the cup anecdotes from our life experience. This we, we call actually, that banter. yeah, this we actually did research, and so it's we have references, and it's uh, it's verified in all of our notes, um, or Eric's notes, not my notes, because I don't post my notes. Very secretive. <clears throat> so we're talking about the uh, James Webb Space Telescope today. Uh, we talk, we've mentioned this quite a few times in past episodes. Uh, we talked about it in the Hubble Telescope episode because James Webb is the uh, the follow-up to Hubble, the new and improved space telescope that we will use to f- see all the things that we couldn't see with Hubble. And I guess off the bat, we can just say... James Webb was the uh, Apollo NASA flight director from, I think, 1961 to 1968. Oh, I've got info on him if you want. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was going to go ahead and, uh, and Kemp spin him real fast before we got into all the cool technology. About being a Freemason? Yeah, yeah. Give, give, <laughs> give, me, give me your Kemp spin on, on James Webb. So place your eye of Horus in the correct position. Um, well, he, I don't have like all of his information, mostly just that he was like a NASA administrator, but prior to being a NASA administrator, he was the undersecretary of state. And this was during the lavender scare, which was the purge of queer people from government service. I Um, love the name of that. Like that sounds like such a government black ops code name to to really get rid of all the homosexuals like ooh lavender scare they're going to make it's us a, they're going to make us all gay if we get too close to them i swear <laughs> i've heard this heard it before but I, I must have forgotten because yeah lavender is such a specific like even and maybe this was more teletubbies oriented but uh, like purple what everybody was like oh yeah purple is the is like the gay color yeah yeah Oh, you but, must be a lesbian because you like purple. Wasn't it? What designated? Like the Nazis, did they use lavender? I thought it was like a pink triangle or something. I can't even remember, but it's. Um, and I remember that too. Like in elementary school, there were girl colors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yellow, pink, and purple were, for what? And yellow doesn't seem. I don't know that confusing the like the uh the sexualization and genderization of color seems like a thing that started to deteriorate when i was like in high school yeah there i mean you probably remember this too but at least when i was in high school like guys wearing a pink shirt like oh yeah like the shirts you would get from hot topic that it's like real men wear pink and you're just like okay you don't have to (laughs) Act masculine. You can just wear a pink shirt if you want. And, and, you know, it was our high school experience where, like, it was just common everyday occurrence to be called uh, the the uh, 
the derogatory homosexual F word like a hundred times a day, <laughs> you know, like that, that was just the colloquial term that people used to refer to you if they thought you were even the slightest bit, not macho masculine. So I brought a guitar to school, obviously I I'm, I'm a homosexual. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, it was so weird. I do remember, uh, yeah, getting called that by my uh, middle school football coach um, because I was playing cornerback and didn't didn't stop trying to keep the receiver off, like from coming off the line quick enough. I, it was so weird. You got to like, jam him harder like a man, not like not like some fairy boy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyways, so during the lavender scare. Um, there's like actual archival evidence <laughs> to show that this guy, James Webb, was in high level conversations talking about the creation of policy and the resulting actions of getting rid of people they perceived as queer. Mm-hmm. Um, but the like the kicker was uh, this case, Norton v. Macy, where a former NASA employee, uh, Clifford Norton, w- uh, sued the Macy, like these people at NASA, um, because he was fired for being queer. Now, uh, the trial took place in 1969, but the incident occurred in 1963 when James Webb was a NASA administrator. Um, Norton was arrested in DC by police after having been observed speaking with another man and was brought in for questioning on suspicion of homosexuality. So right here, what we're doing is, you know. Yeah. And I love I love the justification was that it's not because we're worried about them being homosexuals. That's not it. That's not what we're concerned about. It's because, you know, everyone wants to keep their homosexuality a secret. And of course, the Russians are always trying to find out secrets. So if they find out you're you're gay, then they're going to hold that against you. And then you're going to become a a secret agent for the Russians and start giving them all of our information. So that's why we have to fire you because you're gay. (laughs) Yeah, it's nuts. But I mean, this doesn't happen anymore, right? I would hope he was arrested by cops. So they called his boss and called the NASA security chief to come to the police station to participate in his interrogation. Yeah. I, I mean, maybe it's because it's a government position. I don't know. I I can't imagine it happening in like private work, but I dude, there's so many like uh boss type people who own different companies that are because they're prestigious in the community are chummy with the cops and I wouldn't be surprised if there's places all over the country where the boss gets called in to help deal with a certain employee who got picked up for drunk driving or whatever. And that's wild. Um I mean, it's just, again, <laughs> as we take things big picture, just showing how the state is perpetuated by violence of either the state actually imprisoning you or you losing your job and then starving. Um, but that's a conversation for another day. You're talking about uh, but cancel then, culture, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, only having one Netflix special. So then Norton was released by the cops, but the security chief took him to the NASA headquarters and continued to interrogate him until the next morning. So like an all night interrogation. Uh, and then he was fired. 
like it but there was no known uh consequence for the security chief like torturing someone essentially you can't just keep someone from falling asleep well because you gotta you gotta find out if they've become uh, compromised by the russian government and now they're a spy so kind of uh you gotta treat them like that i i, I don't see any way around torturing them you gotta do it that's it's that's just what we're up against in this cold war <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh this guy is um you know, just this James Webb guy is a, a character. And it's funny, uh, they don't mention that on any of the uh, actual NASA <laughs> site no. talking about the telescope. They talk about his amazing achievements of being the administrator during the Apollo mission. And it's got to be something where they decided to name it this, you know, whatever, 1997 or whatever, when they first imagined the telescope. And Well, no, they... It was called the Next Generation Space Telescope until 2002. Okay, is 2002. When they renamed it. So yeah. 19 years ago when they renamed it, and I don't know. I was, I guess it was just such a different time. <laughs> I, well, I was we're coming only, off the I, heels I was, I was of 9/11, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're 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 just going to be lifting up all of the figures that that were part of American prestigious greatness, like the getting to the moon so he got he was you know presiding over us getting to the moon so we got to name stuff after him build a few statues yeah so is that was that all of your kimpsman yeah that was all my kimpsman i i don't know if you've watched uh there's a apple tv series god what is it called now it's 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 like a it's like a rehistory of going to the moon and the and the space program. oh for all mankind that's what it's called and um, it's pretty cheesy that's like they have M16s on the moon and the Russians are fighting the Americans with guns in space, at, you know, Wait, later on. This is like a reimagining of it? Yeah, it's like a reimagining. Said, okay. So like the reimagining is basically everything is the same. All the characters are the same, but Russia gets to the moon first. Russia is able to land on the moon first with a man with a with manned spacecraft. They don't run out of money before they're able to put a manned mission on the moon. Okay. <clears throat> so that's like the only difference. So like the space race continues because Russia beats us to the moon instead of us beating them to the moon. And uh -huh. um anyway, this whole the lavender scare is part of the show. Like there's two um uh, gay uh, engineers in the show and one is a female one's a male and they strategically pretend that they're in a relationship and then get married to cover for each other being gay so that uh, they can stay as engineers and then the eventually the the female she becomes like the nasa director and it's only then that they start to find out, oh, my God, she's been secretly a lesbian this whole time. And there's like a big freak out. Yeah, if um, if this continued into the present, would would this still be an issue? Who knows? <clears throat> I don't know. Good thing we won the space race. <clears throat> money well spent. Yeah. So speaking of money well spent, uh, James Webb Telescope is cost us now 10 billion dollars but not just us this is a joint global project between the european space agency the canadian space agency and nasa 
So it's tr- it's cost you know half the world ten billion dollars to to do this, and it's taken now over twenty years of pro- producing it to get it for finally launched. Scheduled for launch December eighteenth. It was scheduled for launch on Halloween, but then that got pushed back. So we're still waiting um, for it to for it to go into space, but the cost overruns and the budget overruns are similar to some of the other stuff we've talked about before when we talked about um, energy technology and just any type of big global effort um, that is going to be dependent on actually inventing a lot of technology in order to make the thing work you like a lot of the stuff to make the thing work wasn't even invented when they envisioned the project and got sign off from on the budget and everything and the schedule like then once you get the budget allotted and you get everyone signed off on the contracts then you can actually start like the design development phase and only then can you figure out oh my god uh, we're going to have to actually invent like 15 technologies in order to even make this thing work. And that could take, I don't know, 10 years to invent some of this stuff. Um, so that's first the first thing you realize that's going to make things delayed and more expensive. But two, we've talked about if you don't ever put enough money up front at the very beginning on a project like this, then you're funding it at a low enough amount that... It won't be developed before the next round of technology advancements are made. And so while it's like reaches its 50% developed part of the of the system, all new technologies will have been released into the marketplace. And you'll want to update your your telescope with all the new technologies that have all just been invented, which means that you have to then strip it down from where it was already at 50% back to like 10 or 15 and then start all the way over again but because you're funded at such a low level it takes a lot of time to put that in there and by the time you're close to done again now you've got to retrofit the thing again for new technologies that you want to put up there so um that's always sort of the problem with wanting to have a lot of constraints on budgetary spending when it comes to science and technology projects when after Hubble, after Hubble and after the space shuttle missions, NASA was forced to get very lean and their budgets were slashed considerably um, compared to what they had previously been. And at that point in time in the 90s, it was all about build it cheap, build it fast, build it as fast as you can, but for as cheap as you can. And what they found was when you don't have the funding you can't build things fast. <laughs> and so it's going to take a lot longer to do anything and actually make it usable for, for what you want to get out of it. So just a, just a little lesson in sort of the bureaucracy when it comes to science and technology, especially when we're talking about climate change technologies and things like that. The frugal approach to funding those things is the approach that pretty much means that they'll never come to fruition. Yeah. Um, which is uh, very exciting going into this time. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> as we as as we've just uh, you know decreased the infrastructure bill by two thirds, and we're probably not going to pass any of the the rest of the spending bill that needs to be passed to to fund anything in this country. So it's cool. It's cool that we're talking about more budgetary constraint and really getting tight with our with our pocketbooks. Uh, I just need you to stop consuming. So no, wait. I need you to consume, but not complain about it. Right. Right. Um, at least just imagine Trump, you know, that's all you need to do. Um, so the thing that's kind of cool about this one is as its planned launch is in December, uh, it's building upon knowledge from two, I mean, multiple previous satellites, but two specifically, the Microwave Cosmic Background Explorer, which was launched in 1989, mm-hmm. um, which is means you know how far I, I didn't look up but how far back were they even planning on that one like right did that one did planning for that start before there were people on the moon like you know <laughs> it, it's possible that they thought about it in the 60s you know yeah um so that one uh let's see it carried a far infrared absolute spectrum spectrophotometer um compared the spectrum of cosmic microwave background radiation with a precise black body uh, differential microwave radiometer, which mapped the cosmic radiation precisely in a diffuse infrared background experiment, um, which also just doing stuff with the cosmic microwave background. Yeah, because um, it's it's really hard. We can we when it was discovered, we talked about the cosmic microwave background being discovered as they thought there was like pigeon poop in these big listening devices that they had and they realized there was just this background interference that was not directly coming from any source but was from everywhere and um but it's tough to study from earth because there's a lot of interference from earth you know radiating its own heat and everything and the sun and there's it's and then we have an atmosphere and it's tough to shoot to to be able to pick up you know, very detailed information on the cosmic microwave background from Earth. So the only way to really do it is to get something out into space outside of the atmosphere beyond the reach of the interference from the sun and the heat from the planet in order to be able to get an accurate measurement and accurate reading. Yeah. So the, I mean, first off, this, this specific uh, satellite was able to confirm the big bang theory of the origin of the universe. Uh, so it's kind of cool when you can, you know, be like, yeah, this was actually a Big Bang and it was a hot Big Bang. Mm-hmm. There were multiple even Big Bang theories at the time of what that even consisted of. But the thing with heat is mostly important for the cosmic microwave background in that everything is emitting heat. And whenever you're emitting heat, that means you're also emitting light. Um because that's you know it's just energy of like the heat is the energy essentially of these particles that are in waves and stuff that are flowing out of everything everything is electromagnetic radiation yeah uh and you know we've sort of described it like whenever we're talking about energy at the atomic scale and everything so if if it doesn't quite make sense just 
know that I yesterday was having a mental breakdown because I had forgotten the cosmic <laughs> microwave background and Josh had to coax me. It's okay. Uh, off every, the every time I go back to this, I have to relearn parts of it and be like, oh yeah, oh yeah. Because it's this is some of the hardest stuff to conceptualize. And it's why people spend their entire lives just trying to imagine what it is so that they can then try to apply calculations to confirm what their imagination imagined. <laughs> it's it's, yeah, it's yeah. very tough to to wrap your head around it because it is not an intuitive way that we experience the world. Right. It's very, very conceptual. But the hot Big Bang theory in a nutshell is just saying that all, you know, everything, it wasn't necessarily a singularity because now there's debate about that, but just say matter was very compressed and then there was a bang and things started to rapidly expand. But as, you know, Josh points out way more than I do, um, like the, the early universe was opaque because it was so hot that that there was no like atoms forming and any photons or light carrying particles waves um kept bouncing off of these free electrons and everything mm-hmm. it couldn't pass but, light couldn't pass through it very similar to when we talked about the asteroid hitting with the dinosaurs it created so much heat that it changed the changed the function of the air and turned it into an opaque plasma so that light could not even get through that opaque plasma. Yeah, so it's... As the universe expanded, it began to cool because cooling is just uh, having atoms, you know, stop oscillating at such a high frequency because they're bouncing off of everything. So as you have more literal space the atoms are not bouncing off of each other more, so they're traveling longer distances before hitting things. And that is essentially cooling of the universe. Once the temperature dropped below around 3,000 Kelvin, uh, which is insanely hot, um, (laughs) (laughs) atoms could actually start forming. And this is, you know, Josh has, again, mentioned this way more than I do because he's, understood this stuff uh, for a lot better depth so i don't know why i'm the one explaining it's good i i like i like i like you coming back because then i can tell you if i if i if i don't know what i'm talking about (laughs) okay yeah yeah um i base all all of this off of your knowledge though so okay (laughs) hang with me um but that's when the universe became transparent because then photons could actually travel distances without hitting free electrons because those electrons we're bound up with protons uh, and neutrons and stuff. And that's where we get so, hydrogen and helium for the first time. Mm-hmm. And as that occurs, there was like this almost flash right before it turned transparent. And it was like orange, kind of. Um, now, it's you can compare it to like a toaster. Um as this video <laughs> I watched that explained it did. So okay. let me steal their metaphor. I'm interested for this this comparison here. <laughs> As you turn on a toaster, it's like got this kind of, you know, reddish dim light coming out of it. But if you took a, a spectrometer, you could view it actually has like every wavelength mm-hmm. of of light coming out of it. It's just got a peak 
around that kind of reddish orange color. Now, <clears throat> as as there was so much heat, like at the Big Bang, this is why it's it, the hot theory of the Big Bang uh, is essentially proven. It got orange and then continued to cool until it was like a dim red and then went into very important for the James Webb Space Telescope infrared and continued to stretch out because those as the universe is expanding out the light waves are being stretched right. from our observation so the that's what black, wa- that's what wavelength is so yeah. like the further away from the source the longer the wavelength is just like when you drop a a pebble in a pond the ripples are much more frequent closest to where you drop the pebble but then the radiating rings that get away from that central point where the pebble dropped get further and further and flatter and flatter and flatter until they're almost completely glassy flat so the way the length of those waves is actually getting long that's what wavelength means yeah and the the stretching of it which i found crazy is like if you were to go all the way to the edge of the universe, which doesn't exist or whatever, maybe it does. Um, and you could see the expanding universe. That that like blackness is just infrared, so stretched out that it is it is oscillating at such a stretched out um, wavelength that whenever you run that same spectrometer, the thing that told you the toaster has. Uh, a peak at orange, it shows that there's a peak of wavelength coming from that, which coincides exactly to like the temperature of the voided universe, which is 2.7 degrees Kelvin. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kelvin uses the exact same scale as Celsius. Um, it just accounts for the absolute, like zero Kelvin is absolute zero. So it's only 2.7 degrees Celsius above like absolute no movement of atoms right right and that's and we we mentioned this a little bit in the dark energy episode as well because you're trying Mm -hmm. to account for what is what makes up that time difference and what makes up that the rate of expansion and what makes up that uh why isn't it absolute zero and that's where where the dark energy equation comes in yeah, so dark energy, um man, this look at these segues. Uh <laughs> the the next so we had the cosmic background explorer satellite uh that proved the Big Bang existed, but then they sent up another telescope uh in uh June two thousand one. It's a wonder why it didn't make uh, news headlines that year. <laughs> and that one was the uh Wilkinson microwave anisotrophy probe beautiful uh but that one was able to study in much more depth like the the age of the universe um it determined that it's 13.77 billion years old within a half percent it nailed down the curvature of space to within 0.4 percent of flat Mm -hmm. euclidean uh, determined ordinary atoms make up only 4.6% of the universe. Dark matter makes up 24%, and dark energy makes up 71.4%. So 
this space telescope um, is one that like gave us all of those even bigger questions that the James Webb Space Telescope is trying to nail down like a few of the specific answers on. Right, right. Um, so we had Hubble, and Hubble, one of the best things it's known for is its deep field, which we talked about in the Hubble episode, where they just pointed Hubble at the blackest, most non-existent star part of the sky they could find, and then just let it expose for a long time, looking back in time, and then slowly, like, actual galaxies showed up in that dark non-existent uh, nothing in its spot of the sky and not only galaxies but further back to like some of the earliest galaxies that were ever formed in the universe but Hubble has a limit on how far back in time it can look in that deep field and we got to its edge of where it can see um so in in between doing that and getting to James Webb, there have been all these intermediate telescopes that are either using radio telescopes or uh, or or infrared spectrometry to to try to get better detailed answers of what's going on that Hubble was able to see with the deep field and trying to get closer and closer to what that first light was. Like we're probably not going to be able to actually see the moment of the beginning of the universe but we can see the first light that turned on the first photons that permeated the opacity and when the universe became transparent some 350,000 average years after the big bang um and go ahead would we be able to kind of try and explain like that part cuz i think i need to talk through with it with you okay yeah seeing back in time seeing back in time is like um sounds impossible and also you know the more i think about it the more i understand it and then instantly doubt what i'm thinking yeah it falls out of your head um it's well i'm just wondering like how is it that those photons have not yet reached us i guess is kind of like the so I guess this is the the be, the one of the easier ways that I think about it is I don't think about it from an Earth perspective. So if you okay. think about it from like uh, like if you are viewing Earth from a star in the Virgo cluster, so you're like sixty five million light years away from Earth, and let's say you're on a planet there and you've got a really awesome telescope that's able to look towards our solar system and see that there were exoplanets floating around this star and there was a planet in the habitable zone and if you were able to do some information and see what was going on on that planet so like right now today you are in the virgo cluster looking back at earth you would look and see the asteroid hit the earth that kills the dinosaurs that's what you would be seeing because you're 65 million light years away from that. So you're only able to see what happened 65 million years ago at the thing that you're looking at that is that distance. Light is a measurement of distance and time simultaneously, which is the whole Einstein space-time relativity um, deal. So when you think about it like that, it's not that it's... The, the only light that has reached the Virgo cluster from Earth 
is the light from the moment the asteroid hit when the dinosaurs died. They haven't seen anything. If you were in Virgo right now and you looked at Earth, you your current perspective of Earth was, oh my God, a bunch of dinosaurs just died. You would have no idea of anything that hap- has happened in the 65 million years since. Okay, so us looking at the cosmic microwave background um, is peering, you know, 13 billion light years away because it has taken that light that long of time to travel to us. So it's, in essence, we're able to like almost look at a photograph of that. But right now it's had 13 some odd billion years to develop further. So it doesn't currently look like that. Correct. um, Or operate that way or whatever. Right, but to see it at that distance... We can only mm-hmm. see it as it was 13 billion years ago. And there's another way to think about it like this. So from our perspective, when we look at the sun from Earth, we can only see it as it was six minutes ago because it takes six minutes for the photons from the surface of the sun to travel to the Earth. That's how far away we are from the sun. So, in- so like if the sun just immediately blinked out, it would take us six minutes from that occurring for us to no longer see it correct so if we wanted to see the sun where it was almost in real time we have to get in a spaceship and travel to the sun to where we're right next to the sun and we're looking at it and then we're seeing it closer to real time but you have to get rid of the distance in order to shorten the time envelope at which you see into the past so if you want to see you know, anything, if even even in just like close proximity, um, there's, you know, fractional differences in the time at which um, you see someone on the opposite side of a field to you. So if you want to see them at the closest possible time to real time, you have to get as close as you possibly can to that person. Uh-huh. So uh, this, so then... Six minutes after a sun, or six minutes before a sunrise, I don't know which way my orientation is, but the Earth is actually oriented where the sun is already in the sky. But the light is right, right. But the light has because the light takes, yeah, man, that's all right. Cool. I saw a sunrise yesterday, so that's why. But I, yeah, it's it's a little bit different because the sun isn't actually rising, it's the Earth spinning. Mm-hmm. So okay. you're relative to that, but the sun that you look at at the sunrise is six minutes in the past. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now that that totally makes sense, <laughs> now 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 you now you, we can understand. So visually, we only see in a very limited part of the electromagnetic visual spectrum of light, and that is accounting for light that is of these certain wavelengths that are pretty squashed together. Um, so using visual light to see back in time, you things get invisible real quick because we don't see a very wide spectrum of the electromagnetic spectrum. So to see stuff really far in the past, like you talked about, that stuff is gone so far stretched beyond the visible spectrum that it is now completely in infrared and it has redshifted so far that 
these wavelengths are stretched almost to their maximum. And when you when you look, the only way that you can detect that light is with a very high-powered infrared uh, sensor on your telescope. And that's what the James Webb has. It has three different infrared um, devices for telling different things. But one of the primary ones um, is specifically for looking for the the earliest uh, photon that pierced through that transparent, that opaque veil when the universe became transparent. So the second light came on in the universe, this telescope is designed to find that out. And based upon like if it's launched and everything goes well, um, the estimates are us being able to identify that point in about two years from when it's oh, wow. from when it's launched. So you're talking, you know, Christmas 2023, we could be talking about seeing the first light of the universe and we'll we'll be able to have that conversation. We've seen the very first light that ever turned on in the universe. Yeah, and this is going to be different than, like, if you look up the cosmic microwave background, there's, like, a a staticky map that's, like, kind of blue and red and everything. But that is not, like, the visual representation of it. That's the heat difference mm-hmm. within, like, fractions of a Kelvin <laughs> between each other. Because that was the other thing. I got down this, this side road, which I will not open that door right now but it's like there's like these vibrations along like the oscillations and stuff and right as recombination which not a good word for it uh as atoms come together calling it recombination because (laughs) um i guess the i guess the idea is of if if everything was so dense and then it exploded it maybe it was somehow combined and then turned into free flowing electrons of plasma and then it had to cool down so that they could recombine so i'm guessing that's where they're getting it from but then you're really thinking of like some singularity at the beginning where all of the universe right. was like contained or something and it, that that one kind of trips me out <laughs> yes but the there were like these oscillations and right as like recombination occurred, the oscillations froze. And that's why you have like an uneven cosmic microwave background, which is wild. Um, but that's that's going to be really cool that it's it takes that short of amount of time. Yeah. Um, Not the actual. Oh, just like all the actual instruments and everything they uh, did. I was watching a video. Do you know the. uh it's a great video. The guy has a great video series. Like I recommend it for adults definitely, but if you have kids that are interested in like anything, the smarter everyday guy. Oh yeah. Um, do you know who I'm talking about? He's like blonde. He's got a southern accent. I, I don't know who you're talking about, but I there's so many videos on yeah. the, the space telescope that <laughs> <laughs> But he's like um very, very good at breaking stuff down, but his dad actually did work on the James Webb Space Telescope, uh, designing like I think designing like some of the the sun shield. Okay. But he was able to have an interview with the I forgot his name, but it was like the original chief scientist. Oh yeah, this. I know which guy you're talking about. Um, he's uh, he looks like an old actor from like horror movies in the 60s i can't think of his name but yeah i know i know exactly which guy you're talking about 
Yeah, he uh it's so it was very cool to like hear um all of the the stuff that went into, you know, everything that they created, like from the people who designed it. But essentially it's like from his perspective, he's just excited because they're going to be able to see so many new things. Mm-hmm. Like people have theorized about them, and that's what people had theorized about stuff. I I suppose, right? With Hubble. Oh yeah. Um so it like every single one of these observatory things, and as you've mentioned too, the difference between manned space flight and or space exploration and I guess instrument exploration. Yeah, robotic and robotic or technological in, in, um exploration. Every single one of them is to be like, we think that like we have a good guess that these things exist, and then you're going to actually be able to like have the data mm-hmm. <laughs> from them. You don't um, just send a guy up there to then look out of a window of a spaceship and be like, yeah, I, I saw some stuff. <laughs> oh boy, did I see a few things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, Justin's tweet sent me down a Leica rabbit hole. <laughs> and uh, um, I didn't know this. The They had announced at the time that Leica like, passed peacefully, but documents revealed that like the cabin overheated oh, no. and it was, like like it like it did not go good it was not fun it was not a fun re-entry in death uh, <laughs> i don't think <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was not great but i but i also uh, don't think they designed it at all for the dog to survive like they didn't know it was just about the launch and to see if the life support system would work in space but they weren't yet worried about designing the, <laughs> designing the survivability system for coming back. It was that's why they sent a dog. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, you know, I I worked in medical research. I I have been there. Never done anything on a dog. That that I think was a bridge too far. But um, <laughs> I, I've looked into the lifeless eyes of a monkey. <laughs> No, your your fellow primate, but just please God, not a dog. <laughs> it was. I'm not the only one, <laughs> is what I'm saying. <clears throat> yeah the the design of this thing is very important. Um, one, uh, so it's going to be way far away from Earth. Uh, you know, we're talking a million miles away from Earth. Uh, almost four times the distance of the moon from earth it's beyond the moon it's uh the hubble space telescope was only like 300 miles up orbiting and still in the atmosphere of 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 the earth uh which Mm -hmm. made it you know great because all of the design constraints on the hubble was about like could it fit in the payload bay of the space shuttle so that was the size constraint and then, because we have the space shuttle, we can just fly up there all the time and tinker with it and work on it and upgrade it and put new instruments in it and put a new hard drive in it as computers get better and fix it because uh, we had the refraction error in the, in the shape of the mirror, so we had to put a contact lens on it. All those things. That is all impossible with James Webb. It's so far away. It's four times further than any man has ever been in space. So if you're going to send a person to fix something on the thing, it's not going to happen. It's not happening. Uh, so it has to be perfect when it deploys 
no no mistakes, no, oh crap, we forgot to do this one thing. Uh, that's part of the other reason why it's taking it's taken so long because every time they get close, they got to run through all these diagnostics and then, you know, they'll get like a bunch of uh, single point errors and say, well, this is too much, too high of a risk factor. We've got to go back to the drawing board, redesign some of these components because we have to limit our risk factor has to be zero. It can't we can't even like just design in some risk. You know, like like you would do on a lot of other projects, they'd be like, "Oh yeah, well, we have some tolerance for the risk here because whatever it is, this is a one shot deal. If it fucks up, it's gone. It's that's it. You don't get it back." Yeah, the I found that pretty interesting too. That like the the specific orbit that it's going into. Let's talk. Well, it's one Lagrange orbits. It's, it's so cool. <laughs> the I mean the discovery of these is pretty nuts too. I think didn't um was it like the Euclid guy was who discovered the L1 2 and 3 but then the Lagrange? Yeah, yeah, it was a French guy in the 1700s who like really came up with the full-throated theory like Euclidean geometry hints that all of this should work. Like there would be these points because, you know, relative to the mass of certain things. And if you're using these, of course, I, and I think Euclidean, the Euclidean aspect of it was using like perfect orbits, not spherical orbits or, or not uh, elliptical orbits. So there was a lot of there was work to be done in order to figure out how mm-hmm. you could do it where the orbit actually varies because like Earth is an elliptical orbit. Sometimes it's closer to the sun and sometimes it's further away from the sun. So you have to like adjust for those things and adjust for the fact that the moon is a thing that is orbiting the earth that is also in an elliptical orbit. And so you have to adjust for all those dynamics. But you can find these certain points of, I guess, what do they call meta instability? So like the point in space, it is stable in two dimensions but not in a third dimension. So you can put mm-hmm. like a spacecraft at this certain spot that is beyond the moon and in two directions it will be stabilized. So it only needs like some fuel um, or a small thruster to maintain its third direction so that it can stay in a stable orbit. Um, and so the James Webb does have like actual rockets on it and rocket fuel that it has to be sent up with. And that's why it only has a certain lifespan because it's once it runs out of that fuel, once it runs out of those reserves, it can't stabilize its orbit anymore and it will no longer be useful. Um, the, uh, the Lagrange, the Lagrange points, the interesting thing about them is that they're what are there five lagrange points yeah yeah with with any two large bodies yeah so technically the 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 kind of obvious one is point three which is exactly on the opposite side of the sun as the earth um you could park a very non-massive spacecraft like a telescope completely on the opposite side of the sun from the earth and it would have a meta instable orbit where it would be stable in two directions and maintain that orbit 
However, if the the reason one of the the reasons why this was important is because for a long time there was thought to be maybe a hidden terrestrial planet that was inside the same area as Earth, Mars, and Venus. Um, but it was just always positioned on the opposite side of the sun from the Earth, so we could just never see it. We were like orbiting exact, exactly on opposite sides of the sun in perfect concert with each other, and so we could never detect its reality. But doing this math for Lagrange points shows that if something were to be that massive, it would, it might sink up for like 150 years but then it eventually would fall out of that sink and and no longer stay positioned exactly on the opposite side of the sun and it would eventually catch up to us and collide with us and we would both annihilate each other so that like disproved the idea that there was this secret planet hidden on the other side of the sun from us but that also gave the rise to oh wow we could use this information to park a lot of spacecraft all around this orbit of the sun and they don't have to be right next to earth and they'll be able to be stable and kind of just maintaining these orbits because they're not massive. Yeah. The, the crazy thing too, and I may repeat what you said cause I had to let my dogs in. They were going to break down the door. <laughs> um, I really like the L1 and L2 positions. L4 and L5 do not make sense to me. Yeah. Because <laughs> they're like, they're like, I guess one sixth of Earth's orbital, if you imagine circular distance along the track and either ahead of us or behind us around the sun. And we have satellites in both of those spots to observe the sun. Those are where our That's- solar satellites are that look at the sun but don't get interference from the heat of the Earth-Moon system. So they're on those sort of tangential, angled points ahead, and they're orbiting just ahead and just behind the Earth, orbiting around the Sun in almost the same plane as the Earth. (laughs) Yeah, that's crazy. (laughs) But L1 and L2 make sense because it's L1 is between the Sun and the Earth, and and that's 1.5 million kilometers away from Earth. And then L2, same distance on the outside. So it's always on the dark side of the Earth. But the the neat thing about it is that the mass of the sun and Earth pull that L2 um, orbital location, I guess, gravitationally strong enough that it maintains that spot, essentially, because it the Earth is pulling it so strong that it stays like a like the arm of a clock Mm -hmm. where it's always in that position. So, um, but looking up that they, as you're saying, like they are, uh, what did you say? Like metastatic? Yeah. Meta, meta instable, I think was the term terminology used. It's in, it's instable, but only in one of the three planar directions. What's so weird about it is the things that go to these points, they they orbit them around that point. Right, right. It doesn't just, <laughs> it's not isolated in a point stationary. It goes into a halo orbit that is perpendicular to the, to the plane of the planet orbit. And it orbits like a, like a vertical halo around this L2 spot of space. 
but there's no yeah, like it's... actual mass. There's not like uh, an asteroid at L2 or something that the the space telescope will orbit around. It's just orbiting around this special spot of space that has this special mass ratio to the geometry of the plane of the planets in the orbit. Yeah, it's it's so cool that there's just happens to be this random empty spot of space that has the correct gravitational pull towards that exact spot that something can then orbit around like it's on a string or something. Right, right. Cuz cuz um, if you a lot of us intuitively think Newtonian, we think like Newton do, did. So our our intuitive concept of gravity is based upon Newtonian physics. And so it it really messes up your head when you have to think like Einstein gravity because now it's no now you're talking about these wells of gravitational pull inside of space-time and you think about it as like this sort of topographic map of invisible space where these pockets sit of gravity that then you can put stuff inside of these sort of gravity bowls and they'll spin around the edge of the bowl but if you think like newton you have to think that there's a large piece of mass sitting in the center and then there's like a string off of that holding on to the other thing just like you're spinning it around spinning a sling around your head or something like that cuz that's our intuitive concept of what an orbit is based upon like cuz just Newton's more intuitive than Einstein is but Newton ultimately was wrong yeah i the thing that i was wondering though is how does the moon not mess this up like i know the moon's orbit is like at a 5ish degree angle compared to that plane but that that one messes me up i think it messes up messes it messes it up a little bit which is why the halo orbit of the james webb going around the l2 spot is not a perfect ellipse it's like kind okay. of a looks like kind of a loose rubber band that you lay on the table where it kind of is not a perfect shape perfect yeah it's all wavy yeah um but also the moon is uh I think the the other part of the geometry is if you think of the moon earth as a singular system, the moon earth system, then that determines what the distance is of that L2 spot beyond the moon. Oh, okay. So like if the moon wasn't there and it was just the earth, L2 would be in a different spot closer to the planet. Gotcha. That makes sense. Kind of like what we talked well, about with the space elevator like if you had a space elevator, you'd have to run the same length of cable out beyond the base station into space to stabilize it. It's it's mm-hmm. kind of similar to that concept. Okay, that makes sense then. Like like the tail on a T Rex. Yeah, yeah. You got it. You got to balance yourself on your hips, or otherwise you're going to fall forward all the time. <laughs> so the aspects of it are pretty crazy, but hasn't the like mission itself been wild like you were telling me the transportation of yes this thing so um well first i think most of it the initial construction was done in like maryland and then it got sent to houston in the mid 2000s to do a bunch of this testing on because in order to be a good infrared telescope you have to operate at extremely cold temperatures because you don't want any interference 
not just from the sun and the earth because those emit heat and they'll will mess up your infrared readings. You the heat generated just from the telescope will mess up the readings. So like Hubble couldn't do any infrared stuff because it it's maintained at like 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Like even though it's in space and it's orbiting the planet, the internal temperature of the inner workings of all of the computers and everything in there keep that thing humming at about 60 degrees. So it's pretty it's pretty warm. Yeah. The uh the infrared uh tools on the James Webb have to be at like four negative four hundred and seventy seven degrees Fahrenheit to operate without it to to block out the interference and actually see these very long red shifted wavelengths of infrared light. So one, you have to get the thing way far away from the sun and the earth and the moon, and you got to build a big shield that blocks any light that emits from the sun, earth, and moon, because that's going to mess up your system. But two, so that's like the passive cooling system. You have a big shield that blocks all that energy from the sun that would heat up your device, and that blocks the, <clears throat> those instruments from that heat. But then they also have, have to have an active cooling system, which basically uses helium through a tube very similar to like a refrigerant line and an air conditioner. And that keeps the internal workings of the, um, uh, of the, of the device at a cool enough internal temperature so that they won't, it won't cause any interference from its own self. Um, so in order to be that cold, after they manufactured a lot of it in Maryland, they sent it to Houston and there they had like these big chambers that they built during the Apollo uh, mission stages where they would test them for like the coldness of space to make sure like the things wouldn't break apart and they can make these things super cold. So that's where they would temperature check the all the other instruments because, yeah, you need it cold to run your infrared instruments, but you also don't want to make it so cold that then that cripples all the other instruments that might not be able to handle being that cold so you have to figure out like how do you balance that out okay now we got to figure out how to insulate some of these other systems that can't operate in that cold from the cold that we're trying to create um so they have to work out all the headaches over a few years in houston just to get the temperature stuff right then from there they sent it to california uh to goddard to finish out the finish out the build and from Goddard, after they did a bunch of tests there and, you know, delays, and that's where they tested the, uh, the, solar, say, uh, the, the solar shield and all of those elements. Then um, a couple months ago, they did the final diagnostic where they did the entire simulation where they sent the commands to it as if it was in space to completely unfold its giant ap mirror apparatus and unfold its sun shield. And once it passed that, they were good to schedule the launch date. So because this is a joint effort between the Europeans, the Canadians, and the Americans, this is being launched from the European spaceport and um, French New... Wait, where am I thinking? Why can't I think of the name of the island off of the northeast coast of Falcons. South America? New Guinea. <sighs> no. French Guiana. And um, so 
they have to put it in a specially designed container ship. And this ship has been used to move other satellites from California all the way around to like Cape Canaveral and Florida to launch them. But they have to build a special container, one that completely eliminates like the vibrations from an ocean voyage from getting to the <laughs> to the telescope because that could mess it up. But you've also designed the telescope to deal with a lot of rocking and rattling because you have to put it on a rocket and it's got to go up into space. So you have to like design it too to handle some of that robust nature of structural shaking, but you don't want it to use up that sort of structural integrity that you've designed for the rocket flight on the ship voyage to get launched on a rocket. So you have to come up with a whole other system of protecting it to just put it on the ocean. So they put on this big ocean barge. It goes all the way from California through the Panama Canal down over the Horn of South America till you get to, till you get to the European spaceport and they unload it. And along that journey, they had like, uh, I think it's, they had 15 different safe ports scheduled along that journey so that if any weather event came up or whatever, they would have a spot to pull the ship in and just wait till the weather passed because they were also doing this during the end of hurricane season. <laughs> but look, I got to say, I'm impressed they made it. Yeah. It's just, it, you know, when you talk about a telescope, I think a lot of people don't envision how massive of an undertaking a space telescope like this is and how like a lot of this technology required like half of the world to work in cooperation together to develop and then two to actually get it to being a point now where it could be launched this is it's like humans did stuff in the last three years to make this thing come to fruition that no human beings had ever done on the planet before it, it you know it's 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 kind of like building the pyramids or something you know the the weight the ingenuity required to come up with this and how to do it is not just uh, a thing that you can do by uh like hiring just whatever contractor you can find in your city and giving them the right plans and they'll put it together. It'll work. Yeah. Is this, is this a lowest bidder situation for some of this? Well, yeah, that, that, and that's how it started um, in the initial phase because NASA's budgets were getting cut and part of the um, instructions from Congress was to go out and get the lowest bidders who could build it the fastest, <laughs> which Jeez. caused a lot of the, eventual overruns time delays oh we tested it and the sun shield ripped oh god so now we got to go figure all this out again <laughs> you know yeah yeah so yeah they the actual launch too like the rocket is i was reading somewhere that it's the safest rocket for it to go up in yeah it's the, is, is that the rocket with the best history of of reliable launches and reliable flight and it's it's specific because it has a big payload and i guess we haven't really talked about the size of this thing it's huge um like it, the the mirror is over 21 feet in diameter um so it's it's close to five times the size of the of the mirror and the hubble space telescope and it's made up of a lot of smaller um, hexagonal 
um, mirrors. And so they all have to fold up on top of each other to fit inside the rocket. And then you have the, uh, the sun shield that protects the mirror and the telescope device. And the sun shield is bigger than a tennis court. And so that thing has to be folded up uh, a dozen times on top of itself to fit inside the rocket. So then when it's launched and when it finally gets out to L2, the sun shield has to open up, unfold itself from 12 folds, and there's five layers of sun shield that all have to extend independently of each other, and that all has to go right. <laughs> and then the actual mirror of the telescope has to unfold and open. And so to make sure that they don't have any focus problems like they had with Hubble, this mirror is segmented, made up of a bunch of little smaller mirrors. And all of those smaller mirrors have these very tiny fine-tuned control motors on them. The, when, and when I'm talking fine-tuned control, they can adjust the plane of, the, of each of the individual mirrors by one ten thousandth of the thickness of a human hair. So... That's the level of control that they can have like, oh, we just need to move this one just uh, one ten thousandth in on the left corner to get a better focused image. And they'll be able to have that type of control over over the device, which is that's just crazy enough to me that they make motors that are able to move in increments of one ten thousandth of the thickness of a human hair. But. I guess that, you know, if you have this much time and this much money, you can invent that type of stuff. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> uh, the mirror aspect of it, too, that is, uh, I I had never heard of this. This is something with optics that, like, um, I believe in, in mirrors and lenses you have these problems. But they have, it's a three-mirror anastigmat, uh, which means that there's a, this large mirror you're talking about is like concave. Yeah. Um, it's like a big, you the know, big gathering bowl. light mirror. And so, yeah, so that can capture as much possible light as they could design it to build. Obviously, I guess they would want it even bigger, but just. Yeah, they, they built it to the harder. absolute limits of what the rocket payload could handle and the amount of folds they could do to get it to fit in there if they could have made it fold one more time to expand the diameter i'm sure they would have but this is the maximum payload that they could handle yeah and it it looks tight when it's all like bottled up but the three mirrors so you got this big collecting mirror that's concave then that collects all the light and points it towards a sort of convex mirror which if you look at it uh, at the James Webb Space Telescope, it's the one that looks like the, like you know how an antenna is a big dish and then it's got like a smaller point out on the side mm -hmm. that actually like the collects nose. the information? Yeah, the nose, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's like a convex mirror that then, like all the light is pointing towards it and then that straightens it out so that it goes straight back to another mirror that is also concave that focuses it on then a flat mirror, which is a fine, fine tuning one. Mm -hmm. And that one they do, they have like, you know, micro control over that is able to account for like motion of the, of the craft. Yeah. 
Cause like we, because because the the craft is orbiting, it is moving around the L two spot, and it is making slight rocket booster adjustments to stay in that orbit constantly. So there is going to be some vibration and movement. And some of the images that it's going to need to take, it has to be staring at the same spot for like a hundred hours. Long exposure. So when you have like the the thing about it is. Uh, that long exposure is such a long time that it would be a total waste if it was staring like, you know, our eyes do. If it was staring at one spot for that long and focusing on it, they built this thing so that it has so many sensors on it that it's it's like a bug's eye. Mm-hmm. Like everything can be focused. It has such a wide field view. But when you get this wide field view, you have to design it with this three mirror configuration to get rid of um, aberrations Mm -hmm. and aberrations like in optics are like whenever there's essentially an unfocused part of it when whenever there's something that's fuzzy Um, or you have like getting the ghost image like layered on top of the other image it's I was looking through like the three that they're getting rid of which are the ones that they would be dealing with spherical aberration coma and astigmatism and if you've ever played with a microscope and found where it's you know kind of difficult to get it in focus because it's like it's blown out one way and then it kind of comes back and then it's blown out but it's blown out a different way Mm -hmm. um that's what all of these are is it's like when you're trying to focus on something it's like stuff comes into focus in weird ways and like at like kind of a conical shape on one or like a stretched out shape on the other. Um, so it's crazy that they're going to be able to view like hundreds of specific galaxies and stuff at the same time Yeah, because they have this mirror and then like the micro shutter that blocks out all of the ambient light that they don't want to pay attention to. Yeah, and 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 part of that shutter that it's that's cool is that the uh, the way that it blocks information out is is through the digital evaluation of the image. So then it can, if like you're looking at a, a, a the best description I had was like looking at the stars whether if you're in the city versus looking at the stars when you're in the country. When you're in the city, there's so much light pollution that it's hard to see the stars and they look very faint. So what this filter does is that it will pick a very specific spot in the grid of the entire field of view of the telescope and then assign that as the, that might be a very little dim spot in the field of view. It'll assign that as the bright object it wants to look at and then it will cancel out all of the rest of the grid so that it's not absorbing the light pollution from all the other sources of light. So then it can only focus on that one little dim spot, and uh, then you can get all the information. But you can locate those little dim spots all over the place from anywhere in the field of view of the telescope. So that's cool. The other really cool thing about this, though, is that this is the thing that is... um, if we're going to have evidence of uh, life somewhere else in the universe, it's going to be discovered by this telescope in the next 10 years. 
you know, if 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 we want it, if we want it to happen now, this is the device that's going to do it, um, because it will be able to see exoplanets in an actual like visual way, the way that Kepler hasn't been able to do because it just measures the transit. Like we can with this telescope, it'll be able to look at a look at a star system. And that has planets going around it, and it has a filtering system that can block out the light of the star that's at the center of that star system so that it can focus on getting the spectrometry spectrometry of all of the bodies of the planets that are orbiting that star. And when you do that, you're able to tell what the organic compositions are of the atmospheres of those planets. You're able to tell if they have methane, if they have oxygen, if they have nitrogen. You can tell lots of information about what is going on on those worlds. And then that gives you the biomarkers of, wow, the only thing that could be emitting this is if there's a bunch of things that have died on this planet or if there's a bunch of things that are living on this planet. And that would be the first actual sort of verified evidence of life existing other places in the universe which uh you know fingers crossed this thing works so <laughs> they can actually figure that out yeah we're we're, like, we're building it up so big and it's gonna like fail at so, before it gets to l2 and it's just gonna be lost but this again uh like you talked about those previous telescopes too that were the subsequent ones after hubble but before this a lot of those have been placed at l2 so this is not the first this is not the first attempt to put a spacecraft at this uh, Lagrange point out beyond the moon, um, there have been many telescopes and many other space missions that have placed craft at the L2 point, and they've, they last until their fuel runs out where they can't stabilize themselves anymore, and then they just slowly drift off, and they spiral out of that L2 spot and get deeper and deeper and deeper into the solar system. So there's a large handful of spacecrafts that have already successfully been launched, put into orbit at this point, and given us a lot of information. So the trepidation of, oh my God, we're doing something for the very first time by getting it to L2 and having all this, that's not what anyone's scared about. The thing that people are scared about is, what if the solar or the solar shade doesn't deploy? What if for some reason, one of the mirrors doesn't fold open. What if, for whatever reason, we can't turn, as we do the slow turn on of all the diagnostic systems, what if something happens there? Because we're not going to be able to go up and fix it. We can't swap out a motherboard or whatever. The, the interesting thing is they have designed a dock port on this telescope, though. So it so it, like future missions would be able to right. So if in the lifespan of this thing, if we develop a mission to want to just go up and refuel it, like with a probe, it has mm. a docking system designed on it to receive a refuel, but it is not planned to ever be refueled. However, it is capable of being refueled. If we come up with the technology to send fuel on a probe to go dock with it and give it more fuel. So that's sort of the thing. Like if it gives us a lot of re reliable information, it might be cheaper to refuel this thing than to build the next generation telescope and put it in there to replace it. And that might extend the life yeah. of it. 
So there's some cool, uh, not yet designed or figured out uh, space technology stuff that could be done to this thing in the next decade before it ends its life cycle. The I wonder who like how the redes or how the design for docking actually occurred because I can't imagine them proposing that in the first meeting and everybody being like, yeah, let's just put some budget towards <laughs> designing that. <laughs> yeah, you know, I it's it's probably something that is like you know how they this is all scattered amongst a bunch of different contractors. So if you had like it it might be some sort of pet thing of one part of the director who's like whoever's doing the propulsion, you know, we're not planning on it, but it'd be cool if you could put a little docking a docking nozzle on there and if we ever had to figure something out, we could. At least it gives us a little backup plan if we got to figure something out. Um and cuz you know there are like the people at NASA who their only job is to think about contingency and think about all yeah. of the things that could go wrong and all of the potential ways that we could we could fix it. And, you know, out of every mission, they come up with thousands of long lists of contingencies that never happen. But they're there because that's was their only job was just to think about that stuff. And so maybe the port, the docking port is part of one of those contingency plan type of things that made it to the final design and uh it's just a valuation type of thing yeah um i mean i the the most exciting thing i think is trying to discover what other planets makeup is Mm -hmm. like of their atmosphere just because if you could determine um how special earth is or how unspecial it is. I hope it's very unspecial. <laughs> like <laughs> that would be crazy to be able to determine like if there was stuff there. And that's the thing. It's like with the spectroscopy, it's not going to be able to zoom in and see the dinosaurs on these other planets. Right. Um, and travel to these other planets is going to be, um, you and I are not going to be doing any. No, of that. we're going to have to develop some um, physics bending uh, devices to travel to any of these worlds. Yeah, so uh, it's it would just be nice to know that <laughs> there's this is something that occurs uh, in the universe quite often, but it's a timing thing too. Like as we spoke about with the Fermi paradox, like are we going to be looking at the planet? you know, however many billions of years ago and nothing, you know, yeah. what would be the signature of Earth really like three billion years ago? Right. Just be like, oh, there's, there's a hot rock. Yeah, and that's that's like uh, like we talked about being in, uh, if you're in the Virgo cluster looking at Earth, you're not detecting any radio signals or technological emissions that would make you think that there's an advanced society living on that planet because you're looking 65 million years into the past at that planet. So we haven't sent any broadcasts <laughs> yet to the to the universe to let anyone know we're there. And from the Fermi paradox thing we talked about, like we've only been emitting those types of signals for about a century now. So the likelihood the the distance at which we've reached out to the universe to let 
everyone know that we're a civilized, uh, technologically advanced society doesn't go very far. <laughs> it doesn't. It yeah. doesn't. It doesn't reach very many stars. <laughs> so, so those specific stars would have to have planets on them that would able to see and pick up our like. Oh, maybe we just heard uh, heard uh, FDR's fireside chat. Uh, uh, you know, after Pearl Harbor or whatever, and maybe they're hearing that and going, "Oh, well, they got radios." But that's that's only stuff that's really, really, really close. <laughs> that's not not any of these far farther star systems or systems that are beyond in in, in even different galaxies. You know, that's it's all going to be time dilated. Yeah, I mean, how far away is like the the Voyager? Oh God, Voyager now. Now that it's reached interstellar space, I forget what the measurements on that are, but it's something like, uh, I can't remember the, it's like 40 light hours. (laughs) Yeah, it's 14 billion miles away. And then let's do 14 billion miles to light years. So it is 0.0023 light years away. There you go. There you go. So that's, I mean, we're talking not even close. Any Anything is ever going to receive signals from here. So we may not. That's why it would be so cool to be able to detect life somewhere else, because then your timing is just so, so, so such a small window, I guess. Mm-hmm. And you have to be, you know, we're probably not going to be looking back at the exact same planet after we determine what its, you know, atmosphere is made of because there's too many others. Well, there's that's the other cool thing about this telescope, similar with Hubble, like people from all over the world get to just sign up for time on the telescope. And um, a lot of this is, you know, students from all over the place that are specifically just studying a singular exoplanet and there's you know hundreds of those students that are like writing a thesis specifically on this one exoplanet (laughs) so they'll get their time on the telescope to just look at this lava world like going around a red dwarf and then another person will get the time on the telescope to look at this super hot jupiter that's orbiting around uh a giant star really close to it and someone else and everyone is going to be writing all of these papers specifically about all of the contents of just those individual planets that they've studied over years whenever they get their hour on the telescope so all of these things are going to be revisited and our knowledge of whatever the number is like 1400 plus exoplanets that have been discovered so far that's going to just shoot up exponentially now because we were just relying on transit method on Kepler before now we have way more methods of detecting planets however this telescope is still going to be limited on what it can observe on exoplanets like I don't think it's going to be able to see anything that is smaller than one and a half times the mass of the earth Um, and partially that's because especially like an earth system where our system where our sun is this medium-sized star and our planet, the interior planets are so small in comparison to the star. Um, the heat from the star is too great and it washes out the information that you would find on a on any planetary body that would be smaller than one and a half times the size of the Earth with the 
with the instruments that are on this telescope. So there is future telescopes that are designed specifically to see just the interior rocky planets around more massive star systems, but those will be are supposed to fly in like 2023. Oh, I didn't realize they had others that were planned so soon. Oh yeah. There's lots. Lots going up. Because we're not sending people to space anymore, so we gotta send stuff. I mean, yeah, you don't really need to send people. <laughs> Speaking of, uh can't recall news. The Expanse comes out next month. I know. We're really excited. Season six. Can't I can tell. Can't, can't wait. Can't wait to uh to to just we're just gonna end uh with where we stopped at the end of season three and just pick up with season six like nothing happened. <laughs> <laughs> There's not been much story covered anyways. Uh, yeah, yeah, nothing the, nothing really happens between season three and season six. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw uh, Justin replying with, um, oh, shoot, sorry, I forgot your name, uh, if you listen here, but asking about the- flap a mamma where the episodes are. Yeah, yeah. Um, see, I can't remember that name. <laughs> uh, but- um, Justin kept using gifts from future seasons that you haven't reached yet. So yeah, uh, we we call them gifs around here. I don't know. We do not. Uh, the time signing up for time on the space telescope also reminded me. Um, <laughs> there is in the Atlantic article talking about James Webb, the person, a link to the petition that you can sign and add your name to, um, to rename it. So what, what are, I, what I are the new, what are the new names? Do they give you some no, this options? Is, it's just from the scientific community saying uh, that you you want it to reflect the, as they described, the rainbow of diversity mm-hmm. of the people that will be using it. It's um, called the Robert E. Lee Space Telescope. <laughs> uh, yeah, just call it the Space Telescope. I mean, <laughs> can't they all just be then the Space there's, Telescope? There's too many. There's too many Space Telescopes to just call it the Space Telescope. Voyager wasn't named after anyone, but it wasn't a telescope. It was a probe. Why are pro? Why are telescopes named after people? Like and- Hubble. Well, I guess not all of them. Like Gaia is not a person. <laughs> Says you. <laughs> it's it is the soul of the Earth. <laughs> Name it after Galileo. I'm sure there's not one yet. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I'm he had something to do with telescopes. He was probably racist too. Yeah. <sighs> That's that's why that's why he got excommunicated because he was racist. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Well, that's all I've got on James Webb. December eighteenth, we'll all be standing around to watch it launch successfully or blow up in the sky. God, that would be so disappointing. <laughs> Just imagine the budgets after that. They'd be like, "Nope, no more." No, we can't do any budget. No, no more budgets for any science stuff, guys. <laughs> Cancel all the science projects. God, we're going back. We're going back to burning coal and just (laughs) steam engines. That's it. That's all we're doing. This is like a Dune situation. (laughs) Oh, don't get me started. Okay, well, all right, (laughs) (laughs) all right, man. Good job. Until next week. Bye.